0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair.
1: It's such an honor to present this next award.
2: And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to.
1: And the Oscar goes to. And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now.
3: I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture.
0: I'm Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. And Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. And joining us for the first of many, many, many times, our new colleague, who we've mentioned on the show before as kind of a teaser, and now is here in person, David Canfield. Hello. Uh, So we're here now. Uh, Later in the show, you're going to hear Richard and Joanna and Anthony Bresnikan and not me and David talking about On the Waterfront, which is this week's Oscar flashback. Uh, And then we're also going to have two final Emmy interviews as Emmy voting wraps up. uh, I talked to both Brett Goldstein of Ted Lasso and Hannah Einbender of Hacks. Um, But first... Maybe we brought you in here because we want to introduce you because Awards Insider has launched the Finally. <laughs> uh, the section of the Holly of Hollywood that uh, we brought you in for. Um, you've been here for a few weeks writing stuff. Uh, but as you listen to this, it is now live. Um, but also, first, I want you to introduce yourself because I think I imagine there are some listeners of this podcast who know you already from Entertainment Weekly, where you also had a podcast. So uh, do you want to just uh, introduce yourself a little bit?
1: Sure. If you love your award season podcasts, then you may have heard me on Entertainment Weekly's The Awardist for the past couple years. Uh, I was the awards writer and movies editor over there for the last uh, four plus years now. So I've now moved over to Vanity Fair uh, uh, and excited to launch this amazing new section with you guys and uh, gab on Little Gold Men sometimes, too.
0: Yeah. Um, so, David, among the stories that are on Awards Insider now, uh, written by by all of us in the VF staff, um, you wrote an essay kind of kicking off the section, just like getting the lay of the land of Emmy season. Uh-huh. Um, and I don't want to like turn to you and be like, explain the Emmys to us. But I did think it was a really wise look at like, it's a weird Emmys. It's going to be a weird campaign time. There's a few things we know for sure, but a lot of surprises in store. What what were kind of your takeaways in that essay?
1: sure um i think coming off of the big dominance last year of schitt's creek in the comedy categories the emmys have perhaps in alignment with the culture to some extent made a move toward nice Uh, i think this year ted lasso is primed to become the new comedy series winner um, another freshman in a year full of them uh, for big new streamers that's the other big takeaway is that Ted Lasso is taking the mantle for Apple, but you also have HBO Max with great comedies like The Flight Attendant and Hacks. You have Disney+, Plus, which is going to be expanding on the Mandalorian surprise nomination for drama last year with its Marvel series, WandaVision, which is limited, and Falcon and the Winter Soldier, which is drama, both competing. Which is very
0: confusing, by the way, the fact that they're in separate categories, but what isn't confusing?
1: Yeah, and if you ask... Marvel, like, what the difference is. It's extremely technical. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, maybe not. Um, division is extremely closed-ended. Falcon, less so, because it yeah. informs the, the MCU at large. Um, and, and I think beyond that, you have a really interesting division between what was a lot of comfort food and shows that got us through a really hard year, even stuff like the Queen's Gambit Unlimited series, and thornier, really great stuff that... I sense might have a bit of a tougher time breaking through um, Michaela Cole's I May Destroy You, um, which had already been kind of infamously snubbed by the Golden Globes, though that does not always mean a ton when it comes to Emmy recognition <laughs> um, and uh, Barry Jenkins' The Underground Railroad, shows that um, I think have a real place in the conversation this year, but aren't just where the, the real buzz is headed, it seems.
0: Yeah, on, um, on last week's episode when Jeff Charles was on, we talked about kind of the sense of these shows that were like early to mid-pandemic that are eligible for Emmys now that feel like they happened a thousand years ago, yeah. like Hamilton, um, The Queen's Gambit to some extent, even though it seems to be in a strong position. And it, it, it does feel like we're dealing with an Emmy season that's like 10 years worth of television crammed into one thing and like w- where people's attention spans will be, I think is a really interesting question to consider before the nominations, which are out on July 13th, right around the corner.
1: Almost here. And yeah, it's 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 a very... Bizarre encapsulation of a very bizarre year. That's what's going to be.
0: <laughs> Joanna and Richard, is there, like you guys, have been writing some of these uh, awards insider stories with us as well. Like anything sticking out to you, theme wise, about the Emmys that we're in for? I love David's uh, observation of
4: of like nice being a being a theme. <laughs> it's just such an interesting year, um, as you all know, just because. It may not feel like there was so much less content because there's still plenty of content, but there was actually way less content than usual, Mm -hmm. um, of course, because of pandemic-stalled productions. And so some categories feel really crowded and some other categories feel a little sparse. And uh, and that's just going to be an interesting... You know, thing to look at the the same way the Oscars were interesting this year, not because there weren't a ton of very worthy films, but because some of the the heavy hitters were sitting on the bench. Like this would be a succession year, right? You know what Mm -hmm. I mean, like that sort of thing. So uh, that's just something that's going to be interesting to see, sort of what rises up, because like you know you know me every year for the emmys for years in the drama category it was like hey joanna write about game of thrones and and the emmys And i was like sure every year <laughs> and then and then it slowly became who will be the next thrones when it was like clear thrones was ending and then it was like okay it's probably going to be succession but you know things intervene and so the narrative is going to be a little more complicated which is fun which is which is much more fun so
0: yeah i think we'll have longer conversations at some point about the comedy category especially because it does feel it's just full of newbies, basically. You know, you got Ted I think Ted Lasso probably went a bit at the top of the pack no matter what, but it does feel like the COVID thing like made it so it's that. And then a lot of you know, shows we love like Hacks and the Flight Attendant and Girls Five Eva, and then, you know, is this is this when Mythic Quest emerges? Is this when Cobra Kai emerges? It's so
2: don't fuzzy
0: count in a Cobra way. Kai. <laughs> don't, never do. Um And, you know, you think of the Emmys as being so famous for so long as nominating the same 10 things every, every, every year. And that model, I think, was already on its way out and is really uh, on its way out now.
1: Yeah, especially because TV shows just don't last as long anymore. So the the Kaminsky Method is the only comedy series nominee from last year that's even eligible this year, partly because of COVID delays, but also... The Kaminsky Method is eligible for its third and final season. And Master yeah. of None is submitting for this long-delayed sort of, is-it-even-Master-of-None yeah. third season. And beyond that, it's, like you said, Katie, a lot of new shows all vying for a first nomination.
0: Yeah. Uh, at some point, I'm going to... Uh, because. I interviewed Kathleen Turner for the show a few weeks ago and uh, watched the Kaminsky Method for the first time. and Just really enjoyed it, so I'm going to have to do my Kaminsky Method pitch at some point because uh, I would not mind seeing it. In there. I'm happy to make my Mythic Quest pitch if now's the moment. <laughs> is this a year for Mythic Quest, Joanna? I mean, it should be. It's a great. It's a great show, and it's a
4: show that like I've been told the number. Like it, it's not like you know I had this theory for a little while that like from word of mouth that Mythic Quest was really growing in its second season. Um, but I've heard, I've since heard that there is actually concrete data behind this, that its numbers Ooh. are much, much higher in a second season. Mm-hmm. And I think that is, I mean, as much as probably the Mythic Quest creators don't want it framed this way, I think that is the Ted Lasso bump of people watching Ted Lasso and Apple and then being like, what else is here? And I yeah. think Mythic Quest, of all their offerings, I think Mythic Quest is the most obvious next thing to kind of look at. And it's a it's a little meaner than Ted Lasso, but actually very sweet as well. Uh, like, it's got a really nice bittersweet balance to it that I really like uh, and respond to. So Oh, yeah, Mythic Quest, why not? I mean, they've got, they've got these incredible standalone episodes that they do every season. Um, and this season uh, is no exception. And a big, big showcase for F. Murray Abraham. So, um,
0: you know, get, pay attention,
4: Emmy voters, <laughs> to Mythic Quest. We're
0: pro F. Murray Abraham <laughs> podcast. I want to make that very clear. We are, we are. Rightly. Uh, Richard, anything you're rooting for or paying a special attention to as uh, Emmy voting wraps up?
5: I feel like we have this conversation every year, or at least for the past few years, but like the absolute bloodbath going on in best actress in a featured or, a, a, you know, limited series or whatever. Oh my yeah. God. Um, yeah. You know, which seemed like it was Anya Taylor Joy's to lose, and now it's maybe Kate Winslet's to lose, but you have, a, you know, all number of other people kind of vying for that one trophy. It's just a, a, an interesting way to look at a broader trend in television which is you know big name actors a lot of them you know female actors going to television but specifically these limited series so they're not bound by like a seven season contract or whatever it is um there is an abundance in that category because there were some great performances in that category but also because the weird plane of television is kind of tilting in that direction and a lot of people are falling into those categories. So I'll be curious to see who who wins the day eventually. My hunch would be that because Mare is a bit more, you know, recent in people's minds, whereas, you know, Queen's Gambit was out last fall, um, that she will win. And also she's more famous. But uh, yeah, we'll see. I don't know. I mean, I think the affection for both shows is high. Or maybe some other person will come in and steal it from both of them.
0: Yeah, the contrast between that and, with all due respect to the actors in the um, the, the limited series category on the male side, like Hugh Grant for The Undoing, uh, two people from Hamilton are frequently predicted, like Young Mcgregor and Halston, which is a show that didn't really seem to catch fire. Like the there is a, sh- a sharp contrast between those categories. Um, I don't, I I'm not sure who I'm rooting for in that lineup, but uh, I'm sure someone worthy will win.
1: Probably going to be Hugh Grant.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Probably. I want I want to say with
4: Michaela Cole. Um, she did just have like a big moment at the BAFTAs. So that is at mm-hmm. least putting like a little bit of juice in, you know, a narrative that does feel a little in the past at this point. Um, David mentioned sort of the, the golden globe snubs and stuff like that. But I, I do want to like make sure that we keep her in the conversation along with onion and Kate, because she's so worthy. And if, if she doesn't win for actress, I really hope she wins in like a writing category or something like that, you know?
1: Yeah. One thing I'm curious to see in limited because it is so competitive is if you see for once um, more of a split, like in a normal year, if mayor of town, won limited series, Kate Winslet would win limited actress, but uh-huh. is it, is it possible you see some kind of split where in addition to Joanna's point, um, maybe Michaela Cole can win a writing award that would be really deserved. Although I also think her performance in that show is particularly extraordinary and, and should be a part of that conversation more than it probably will be. I agree
0: yeah the conversation question i think is is interesting and um david you've written about this and in our inaugural newsletter with rebecca ford who is our other colleague who's joined to write about awards uh, just you know about how they're doing fyc events in person how they're trying to build buzz but things are not quite what they are it's drive-in events it's you know like so a lot of zoom q and a's um and so as phase two begins like after the nominations come out when like the campaigns for the actual nominees start up like la will be even more open there could be even more possibilities like maybe that's when i may destroy really start surging back I think there's a lot of potential for change at at that point
1: yeah it's a long long campaign season (laughs) (laughs) and nobody really knows what they're doing this time because we are in this strange in-between period and and these shows do feel so long ago that uh, especially new streamers like hbo max and apple are are looking for creative ways to to put things to keep things in people's minds and, and remind people of really what are worthy shows i mean it's it's interesting that a lot of these Nascent platforms have really strong contenders, um, like just worthy contenders, um, all getting in the mix. I mean, I remember when Netflix was just starting out, and we wondered if the Emmys would just ignore them because it was Netflix and they're not a cont- <laughs> they're not a competitor. When they had like Orange Is the New Black, um, but now it's like a new streamers on the horizon, and we are all, all all eyes are on what they might field for Emmy consideration. Yeah.
0: Yeah, you think of HBO Max as just being the schadenfreude of stories where, like, the launch was weird, and they were owned by the phone company, and they got sold, and, like, sometimes the app is buggy, and it crashes, and yet everyone loves Mare of Easttown and Hacks. Like, they made it. And and Lovecraft Country, like, I mean, that's HBO proper, I guess. Anyway, knowing what is HBO proper and HBO Max. (laughs) Knowing what is HBO and HBO Max is completely impossible.
4: It's true. I'm
1: sure no listener would be able to (laughs) define
0: it.
4: No! (laughs) Yeah. And the same is true of Apple. I think like, you know, when I, I mean, I know the morning show is something that we talked about uh, and, and, you know, a lot in award season, but it still felt like when it launched, it didn't feel real <laughs> until yeah. Ted Lasso hit. Um, and we talked about this before in little gold men that like when uh, Apple did their big launch uh, event in Silicon Valley, that they didn't tout Ted Lasso because they thought like these other starrier more a-list projects were going to be their thing and just always bet on Sudeikis that's what I like to say
6: yeah as I say Vegas
0: um, you'll hear me talk to Brett Goldstein about that uh later in this episode about how they were uh they were the underdog from the very beginning just like uh (laughs) Richmond oh love that (laughs) that's sweet um well David, we'll have you back actually we'll have you back on next week because you're gonna come on for an Oscar flashback. So people should get very used to hearing your voice. And um there's so much Emmy stuff to talk about. Um and I'm mean, like sometimes I get worn out by the Emmys, but I think this season is exciting. And maybe that's just because we get to talk about it every day. But I think I think there's good stuff here.
1: There are gonna be twists and turns.
5: Um. <laughs> <laughs> we are now joined by our wonderful colleague, Anthony Brasnikan. Anthony, hello. Hello. Um, so it was your idea to talk about On the Waterfront. Um, so I'm really eager to hear your thoughts on that film. But before we do that, um, I thought we should turn to a piece on VF.com from another Awards Insider colleague of ours, who we, we just heard from David Canfield, but there's also Rebecca Ford, who was going to do some great reporting for us, already is doing that. And she did an interview with a member of, well, a former member of the HFPA, Wen Ting Shu who has resigned along with a colleague from the Netherlands from the group because basically the whole organization from her inside perspective felt completely uh, bad. (laughs) So uh, what what did either of you think about, Joanna and Anthony, think about this piece and what does it say about uh, the future for the HFPA?
4: Yeah, I thought I thought it was a great piece. We're so excited to have Rebecca on board. Um, And like, because this news broke over the weekend, but I was so uh, excited that Rebecca had this like, interview got this insight from this voter. Um, One thing that I thought was really interesting, you know, in all the headlines about these two departures was this follow up of that of the declaration of leaving was and vowing to start like a competing, more inclusive uh, awards body, I think that's an interesting sort of like. Not only are we leaving this, but we intend to make this group irrelevant. But anyway, it's just so interesting, like how quickly the the legs have have been kicked out from under this longstanding um, institution. Uh, what do you think, Anthony?
2: Yeah, same kind of thing. The minute you are parachuting out of an organization like this, and the minute that somebody decides that their presence in such a small group and such a powerful group is more of a liability than a benefit to their future prospects, that's a bad sign for everybody involved. And I think the, um, you know, the assertion that, that there is deep resistance to change within the body of, uh, the HFPA, you know, that's the first inside word we've gotten of, uh, you know, what's happening there within the gears of the organization? You know, we hear all this happy talk on the stage of the Golden Globes about how we hear you and we're going to change and we're going to resolve to be better and different. But insight that actually that's not what's happening is pretty significant. And I think it shows why so much of
5: the town, as they say, is is ready to wash its hands of the HFPA. Yeah, wash its hands. And I, I think that the I wrote a piece back when, you know, NBC had pulled out of broadcasting the show uh, in 2022 about like okay, what could fill its place? Would it be the SAG Awards? Would it be Critics Choice? What I hadn't considered, which is I brought up in in this new story, is that a new thing will be created potentially. I mean, it would take a long time for for that probably to get to the status of like primetime Sunday night broadcast, but like I think that is an intriguing possibility and maybe the right course is not to try to, you know, turn to another thing that already exists in in the hopes that it's better than the HFPA, but to actually kind of build anew and start from the ground up and just be like, okay, how can we build a more inclusive, a more thoughtful, a non-corrupt uh, thing that kind of does the same work, but does it in a much more conscientious and much more contemporary way?
2: Well, that's the part I think has to be emphasized is... The inclusivity aspect, I think, is is just one symptom of the rot that's inherent at the HFPA. It's a group that has behaved poorly for many years, uh, and they've alienated people. And now that they have begun their descent, I guess you'd say, um, there are many, many issues and complaints about how the leadership and how powerful members within the HFPA have. Uh, acted in in a professional capacity at events i mean we saw that that disastrous question of daniel kalua at the uh uh at the oscars but there've been many examples like that and one mistake i don't think is reason to ruin somebody or uh, destroy an organization but it's when your reputation is to constantly make mistakes and constantly be embarrassing and constantly fall short of representation and inclusion and constantly display poor taste in your judgment, I think that's where it becomes an insurmountable series and succession of ills.
4: Well, and it reminds me of, like, what's happening now reminds me a lot of, like, it's not, obviously it's not exactly comparable, but, like, you know, what happened with Weinstein or sort of, like, what happens at the end of the Trump administration where, like, as soon as, as the dinosaur is wounded, like it all sort of starts crumbling around. Do you know what I mean? And like people come out of the woodwork saying things and like that they, that they were quiet about it. in this interview, this great interview that, that Rebecca did, um, uh, you know, this, this member saying like, I was, I was, you know, a bystander for way too long, like watching this happen. And, um, you know, I think we'll hear more from more, uh, folks. I, I doubt, I think this is just the beginning. I doubt these are going to be the only two defections. So, um, yeah, uh, you know, watch this spot. And I'm really glad that we have this, like, robust uh, awards team as, like, this story unfolds um, in David and Rebecca to sort of cover it on the website. So. What a
2: great way to start for Rebecca. I mean, yeah, right? brand new <laughs> yeah. and already, uh, like, killing it with a great, exclusive, breaking, important story like this, too. So, exactly. Um, you know, that you hear constantly people talk about how there are there are good journalists at the HFPA, that's sort of the caveat that a lot of the folks that I've talked to about this subject have always thrown in, like, there are good people there. There are good journalists. There are uh, good representatives of international outlets within the HFPA. It's just, it's sort of the inverse of the bad apples argument, you know, it's like, yes, there's a bushel right. full of bad apples, but there are a couple of good ones in that mush too. And, uh, I think, uh I think you're right about this Maybe the first of those people who decide, you know what, we're not going to change this for the better, let's just get out and maybe start something different. But that's a tall order, too. Just starting over, I don't know, that's... Um, I think the question
5: is not what will replace it, but do we really need a replacement? Right, well, I mean... NBC does or would like one, but, <laughs> exactly. but beyond that. Um, but speaking of things falling apart and the industry and money, um, I thought we could <laughs> Great breathe. segue, I loved yeah. it. <laughs> I thought we could, yeah. It's just a very grim, <laughs> grim <laughs> week, I guess. Uh, talk about the box office uh, from last weekend, which wasn't great. Um, you know, In the Heights continues to flail, which I guess some of us had thought might be one of the saviors of the summer. But now we turn to another savior, uh, Fast 9, which is out this week. I'll have a review on VF.com by the time this podcast drops. So, I'm just curious, Anthony, like, what are, what are you feeling from your industry perspective about, like, the whole summer, everyone back to the movie, ex- is it an experiment, or are we just trying to do things like normal? Uh, how does it look from your view? Uh,
2: I think that Fast 9 is as close as we're going to get to a pure test of what what the enthusiasm for movie going maybe uh, for the rest of this summer. Uh, obviously, I think things will change in the months ahead. But right now, a lot of people are vaccinated. A lot of people are eager to get back to some semblance of normal life. Uh, there hasn't been a lot at the box office that is worth seeing. Uh, and certainly nothing that has been exclusively the domain of the theatrical experience. So you've got sort of combination films that, uh, uh, you know, uh, this is going to be on HBO Max, but it's also going to be on uh, on screens. Like So there's always been this element of like, well, you could watch in the Heights at home, so do you have to watch it in the theaters? That, that, that somewhat distorted the results, right? If we're talking about a laboratory experiment. Uh, so the fact there was another option to watch a lot of those films has, uh, I think... Uh, made it hard to interpret what exactly the appetite is for a movie going. Fast 9 is a big film. It's got a huge history. It's uh, It's got uh, devoted fans going back many, many years. Uh, it's exciting. It's uh, multicultural. So there are you know, lots of different people represented on the screen. So it's got everything going for it in terms of... Uh, if you don't want to see this, then what do you want to see? Uh, general population. It's not. It's not a. It's not a high-minded art film that's only going to attract people who've, uh, who, who like that sort of thing. It's. It's. It's a popcorn flick, so I think it'll do really well. The only thing I think that might hold it back is um, for families, right? For people with little kids who want to go out back to the movies. Uh, I'm not sure that Fast Nine fits that bill, but that's the only one of the segments of the movie going population that I feel uh, may be left out by this so I think it's gonna be pretty strong um
4: yeah
2: uh, we'll see I don't know what do you think Joy? it's
4: and, like, and to your point, I think it's the kind of thing that we have been, like, an argument for seeing In the Heights in the theater is that, like, it's a big, splashy musical. There's, like, you know, you think about, like, that pool number and you, like, really want to see that on the big screen. But, like, we're not trained, as we discussed a couple weeks ago on our Chicago episodes, like, we're not trained as a movie going um, audience anymore to think of musicals in that way because we haven't had, like, a big, great musical in a really long time. Um, and so, but we are trained to think of, about action movies marvel movies um fast and furious movies like those those are the things you go to the theater for you go to the theater to see the big car stunts and stuff like that the fast uh fast and furious franchise and so i think you know i mean those those films have always made a a mint not always but in the last several installments made a mint at uh, at the box office um It's the kind of thing I I have heard word of mouth. A lot of people that I know are going back to the theater for the first time for that movie. Um, So I I do. I think it's going to be not as big as it would have been pre-COVID, but I think it's it's I'm hopeful and expect that will be pretty massive. But uh, Richard, I know you had some skepticism around it. Now you've seen it. So I don't know if, if that's changed. What do you think?
5: Well, we had talked on on this podcast a couple weeks ago about the film sort of underperforming in China, um, which seemed to be, and and not only underperforming at the box office, it had a huge drop in the second weekend in China, but also their version of, you know, Rotten Tomatoes or whatever. Like, it's really low rated on social media uh, from the audience, which is not a great sign. It's done well, I think, in some other territories, but... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think there might be a little fatigue. It's interesting that Fast 9 was I think one of the first movies um with the onset of COVID last spring to just be like we're, we're releasing next year. They they didn't they didn't kick it to a f- the fall or whatever. They just kind of did a full we're going, you know, next spring, next summer. So they saw that coming, but I don't know if they saw something else coming which might be just a little bit of that um okay, this is the ninth one. The last one wasn't that good. Um, I think the franchise is still coasting a bit on fast seven or whatever that was called because that was like the Paul Walker's final one. And it was this big uh, moment in, culture i mean i'm not even being facetious when i say that it kind of was um absolutely uh, but fast eight kind of like was like a little rickety uh and kind of upped the ante in ways that felt too conscious of um like the the way that certain fans regard the series which is a lot of like can you believe i like this dumb thing rather than just purely enjoying it and i think fast nine is something of a return to form in that regard but i wonder if maybe too many kind of casual fans have been uh chased away from the franchise so we'll see i I mean look trying to conflate what will happen in north america with uh box office in china is that doesn't there's there's not a lot of um syncing up there usually but it's not a great sign that a ready and willing and eager audience uh kind of didn't uh come out for fast nine uh overseas
0: all right well
4: well i mean we'll see i are you under embargo you can't talk about the movie or can you
5: Oh, no, I can talk about it. I mean, cause it's been reviewed all over the world. Okay. Uh, um, yeah. I mean, I think, I, I, <laughs> I, 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 I think it's okay. I mean, I think that there's a lot in the movie that um, really relies on knowledge of the first film. So if people are going to go watch Fast 9, I would, I would really suggest you go watch the first Fast and Furious movie. Is because... that the one where they went really fast? That's the one where they went really fast, but they were also kind of like furious about it. Like, it, yeah, it, yeah, 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 yeah. It was like it was like a, it was like a duality. Yeah, it was very. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, I mean, but the funny thing about the, the movie kind of having this this tie to the first film, where they're really trying to retrench, like, okay, like this is the lore of this whole franchise. Like, they're really trying to connect it to the original passion for the series. the The problem is that when you go back and watch the first one, um, either after you've seen Fast Nine or even in anticipation of it, it's like. Wait, this the first movie really is just about like people in East LA (laughs) racing cars. Like, it's so not,
4: yeah, it's point break, but with cars. It's so, it's so down to earth. And by the time you get to Fate of the Furious, I'm sure, you know, the Fast and Fast Nine or whatever it's called, um, that like the the, what this franchise has done from its origins is is wild. And watching that first one and even like the
5: second one, like, it's
4: just it's a completely different planet. Uh, you know,
5: isn't this one. In space, though? <laughs> like, literally, don't they go to space? Well, uh, <laughs> I think it's been written about enough that I'm not spoiling anything, but if you skip ahead, if you're a little worried, but th- yes, there is a space element in this movie. Oh my gosh, um, I'm excited. Is, but, but actually, it's handled kind of poignantly in a weird way. The, it, the, the characters who end up, in the space thing are are kind of w- well chosen and um, the reaction that they have to this thing is like kind of like it's sort of meta commentary on the whole franchise which I guess maybe is the point where they're like look how far we've gotten while also really thinking back to the first film and and what actually kind of preceded the first film um, there's a lot of lore in this pertaining to Vin Diesel's character Dom if you have questions about Vin Diesel's ability uh, his you know ability to dramatically act Um, you might fast nine might not or F9 might not do it for you because uh, there's a lot of kind of emotional heavy lifting from required of Vin Diesel in this movie that I think his acting range combined with the fact that they've kind of I think digitally de-aged him a little bit interesting (laughs) doesn't really work I
4: yeah I will just say that I I genuinely love going to these movies and watching them with friends and, like, will I defend them as fine cinema? No. But we did have, like, a VF meeting recently where a bunch of people were like... You know what are these movies? And I was like, Oh, I've seen them all multiple times. Oh, fully, have, yeah. Had a great time uh, at the theater and watched them at home with friends um, every time. And I genuinely, uh, and I'm not, I'm not going to apologize for it. I do genuinely get uh, emotional about the seven one uh, at the end with with Paul Walker and like his brothers and uh, everything that went into that. So, um, like, I'll be there. I'll be there at an IMAX. In fact, um, and and so we'll see. But. Um, yeah. It's so interesting that this thinking about those humble origins, as you said, Richard, is so interesting to think that like this is the great, the great hope of the summer box office.
5: <laughs> yeah, and that they so heavily reference that first humble origin. You know, yeah. so much yeah. in this film.
2: I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker
5: Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, But anyway, speaking of uh, criminally uh, involved toughs, (laughs) I think we should talk about On the Waterfront.
4: I think you should do the transitions for all of our (laughs) podcasts going forward.
5: Speaking of... um, so I had never seen On the Waterfront. Me neither. Uh, so that was a really exciting. And Anthony, thank you for picking it to cover on, on our Oscar flashback series. Um, what made you pick it?
2: Uh, well, it was on a list of <laughs> movies that you guys all said you were considering talking about. And so I went through that list and I saw On the Waterfront and thought, I love that movie. And I have a little bit of a history with it. And uh, it's been a long time. And it's a film I have complicated feelings about. What's so, that history?
6: Yeah.
2: Well, uh, it's funny. After a while, you realize you've been doing this job for quite a long time. And I remember when Marlon Brando died, rather than just harvesting people's tweets, <laughs> journalists used to actually call and interview people who had worked with the the person who died. So uh, I talked to Eva Marie Saint that morning, and she told me about her experience making on the waterfront with Marlon Brando, which was an unusual one. And so, uh, I mean, we can talk about that a little more as we get into the discussion about the scenes of the movie, but um, it was kind of fascinating just to hear her from directly from the actress herself, what her experience was like working with this iconic
5: actor in a, an extremely memorable performance. I mean, it's, it's really like, you know, it's funny watching it now with the perspective of twenty twenty one and being like, "Oh, it's De Niro, it's Pacino, it's you know, Joaquin Phoenix." You know, but this was really, by some kind of film historian's assessment, the really the Brando was the first person to kind of bring method acting, Stanislavski, uh, Stella Adler, Strasberg, all that stuff into Hollywood film, um, coming from the very New York school of acting, and this performance particularly, I mean. Stanley and Streetcar Shore. This is the one he won the Oscar for it like really seems to kind of crystallize this kind of new acting. And even with all of the the sort of comparisons that we have because so many actors since this have kind of emulated it, it still feels incredibly like vital and present and alert and it's fascinating watching what Brando does in this movie because we you know we've watched a lot of older movies for this series and just probably in the course of our lives. And he's doing something very, very different from a lot of films from this era. I think the the kind of jolt of that really has survived uh, you know, the sixty seven year translation to now. Do you agree, Joanna?
4: Yeah, I mean, I was so thrilled to watch this, Anthony, thank you again for picking it. Like, I don't know why i had never seen it. I've definitely, you know, I've seen Streetcar a bunch of times. I, I'm a fan of, of young Marlon Brando. And I knew that this is an iconic film that meant a lot to a lot of people. Um and uh, I share your complicated feelings and we'll definitely get into that, the Elie Kazan of it all, but like Brando's performance and, and specifically, I think what a lot of actors who saw this performance and, and sort of said, that's what I want to do, point to the, um, you know, I could have been a contender scene, um with Rod Steiger in the back of the car, which I, I had always like, I've seen that scene before, and I had always wondered why there were blinds in the car. And I find out, I found out, it's because they like forgot to pay for rear projection, so they just like put <laughs> blinds in the back of the car yeah. to cover for that, uh, which I thought was hilarious. Um, but but the Brando's reading of that, like the way that it was written on the page, was for him to be like scared or all this other stuff like that, and the way that he's like tender with his brother, um, and and that surprising choice, which Eli because. Dan talks about as well as a surprising to him choice I think is the moment that all these other actors were like wow I can look at a scene and I can even see how it's written on the page I'm supposed to react but I can sort of try to make a different surprising choice um what film is it where they're watching on the waterfront and they're watching him put on her on Eva Marie Saint's glove I don't know. I can't remember what it is. But like, that's, I know that that was like something that he improved, that he just like took her glove from her and put it on while they're like talking around the swing sets or something like that. I know that from another movie. But like, it's um just his choices. And like, I'm curious, uh, Anthony, what you can remember of what Eva Marie Saint said about working with him on that film.
2: Yeah. So that scene in particular is one she talked about, that that was an improv. And I think what we're both talk, or th- all three of us are talking about here is he brought a kind of naturalism to it. Like you can talk about the, the method of it all and the, uh, the education and the, the, deliberate thought that went into it. But a lot of what's special about his performance is the letting go of that thought and just being comfortable enough to inhabit the part so that you can do casual things that end up having a deeper meaning to it. And that scene on the swing set where they have their flirtation and she drops her glove and he picks it up, but he doesn't give it right back to her. He pulls it over his own hand and it doesn't fit. And Eva Marie St. When I interviewed her, she said, you know, that was, that it really was like being an eyewitness to a change in film, in film performance. And you, you realize later, this is film history because it it was so impactful. But that notion that you are just going to inhabit the part and just kind of roll with what happens, that was a, a counter to the kind of controlled way that so many films were performed. That if, if she had dropped her glove on a previous film, they might have kept going a little bit to see if they could save it because they've already shot <laughs> so much of that physical reel of film, but they probably wouldn't have used it. And he found a way to make it useful. And also symbolic. It almost, if you were, you know, I would have assumed that that would, was planned because there's something about it that's like I'm getting in your in your head. I'm sort of like he's he's wooing her. Maybe you could even interpret it in some sort of like a, a sexual metaphor. You know, it's uh, it's um, it's profound. And she remembered him encouraging her to be playful too. Right to be more relaxed, to be more in the moment, to be the character. She talked about how charming he was and how he was everything that we see on screen. Handsome, funny, fearless. He is this guy. And that was what a lot of the early audiences noticed on Broadway when he would walk on stage. His style of performance was so different that people were like, did a crew member
5: wander on stage? Like,
2: what's this guy doing here? (laughs) And, And it's a... You know, Joanna and I have talked about, you know, film language and how audiences have to become acclimated to changes in the language of cinema and and, and how how it's presented to them in, in that when they hear you know in 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 I mean, much older movies uh, if there was music on screen it had to be there had to be musicians on screen as well to explain why the audience was hearing music and I think the same thing happened with this style of performance and I won't hang it entirely on Brando but he was the person to popularize it uh, you know you you watch it and you're like this is a different way of acting you could watch it and say this is is bad acting because it's not uh, it's not the, um, the, the style that was prominent at the time. So he's not doing what they're doing. He's doing something different, but you're feeling it. He feels real. He feels alive. He's going to crawl off the stage or off of the screen. And here's the part where it becomes personal, and this was the part I found most fascinating, is when the film was finished, Eva Marie Saint saw him a year or two later at a party and to her they'd had this amazing connection they'd had this powerful uh, fulfilling semi-romantic at least at a you know professional capacity like moment on this film and she said he looked at her like she was a stranger and she certainly, he remembered her. It wasn't that long before. He just had none of those special, warm, friendly, professional feelings that she had toward him. He was absolutely aloof. And it reminds me a little bit of this Kurt Vonnegut short story called, I think it's called Who Am I This Time? About a small town theater group. And a new guy moves in to work at the hardware store. And he's very handsome, but he's very boring. But when he plays Stanley in on the waterfront, he's dangerous, and enigmatic, and, and a live wire. And this woman who's like the Meryl Streep of this small Midwestern town, like, falls in love with him. And then when the show is over, he goes back to being boring. And so, she can only have a relationship with him when he's playing interesting men in performances, because he takes on their characteristics. And that's kind of what Brando sounded like. And he was very weird and interesting in his own way. But he inhabited that role so fiercely that um, it was kind of like working with Daniel Day-Lewis on Lincoln and and feeling like you got (laughs) to know the president. And then he's just a guy making shoes afterwards. So she said she saw him then. He was aloof to her. They had no connection whatsoever. The guy from the swing set pulling on the glove and being playfully flirtatious was gone. And then uh, she said
5: she never saw him again. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I think that There's something so interesting in there about the way that method acting, Stanislavski method acting, is spoken about as like, people seem to kind of like the performances when they're successful, but in general, there's like, well, that's kind of an asshole way to do things. And I think part of that is because... Uh, so many people, I'm thinking of Jared Leto sending a pig heart allegedly to cast members or whatever <laughs> for a suicide squad, kind right. of do it the wrong way. They think if I'm just like weird for t- two months while playing this weird character, it doesn't is that method acting? And actually a much more... You know, uh, much more involved process, and and you can follow kind of Stella Adler's version, Meisner's version, whatever. You know, there there's a lot of complexity contained within that, and and I think that it's so interesting to to hear about kind of one of these early on film test cases where like Brando was fully doing that. And Eva Marie Saint was like, thought that she was experiencing one thing because that's just what you tended to experience on a film set. You know, she was brand new, but like, um, but in fact, he was doing this whole thing. And I, and I, I, I it's so fascinating to watch him do that whole thing because from the perspective of today, this is a pretty small story. I mean, it's about big things. It's about union. It's about unions. It's about labor. It's about the mob. It's about Hoboken, New Jersey. It's, it's about masculinity. It's, it's huge topics, but, you know, by today's standards, the gangster story is kind of quaint almost. And and he still, I think, and I think Lee J. Cobb is great in it, and I think there are other great performances in it, but he really kind of makes the case for it being a classic, I think, more than the film does. Joanna, do you yeah. disagree?
4: No, I completely agree. I think his performance, uh, like, there's, yeah, Rod Steiger's great in it, Carl Malden's great in it, like, everyone's good in it, but like, the story itself is. It would be fairly straightforward were it not for all this other stuff that Brando feels like he's bringing to it. And there's also this the meta text, which we should probably talk about, which is like Ilya Kazan, who, uh, you know, shortly before he made this film had uh, given a friendly testimony um, in front of the House of Un-American's. An American, what what is what is on American
2: activities? Community. Thank you,
4: thank you. Uh, you know, basically, narking on on naming names uh, in this in this uh, witch hunt, and that's the real use of the word uh, witch hunt uh, of, of trying to root out communists in in uh, in Hollywood, et cetera. And uh, you know, he wasn't the only one who gave friendly testimony. But my understanding is that Brando had to be hardcore convinced to do this movie because Brando was disgusted that Kazan gave. You know, he and he and Kazan had a really close relationship. Kazan directed him on stage in streetcar Kazan directed him in the film in Streetcar and then like um and then this happened and and Brando had to be like Tricked, cajoled, convinced to do this film. That originally, this film, a version of this film, was going to be written by Arthur Miller, um, and it was going to be called "The Hook," uh, which isn't a great title. And, <laughs> um, and, and it uh, still feels
5: very Arthur Miller, by the way. Like, yeah.
4: <laughs> but that Arthur Miller was like that. That screenplay that Arthur Miller had, like worked on for it, so like that, like didn't go for a number of reasons. But eventually, Arthur Miller's like, no, I'm not working with you because of you know what you've done because you have testified. And we talked about this. Um, I think Richard, when you did one of your like anniversary look back at the Oscars, like the year that Ilya Kazan won the honorary Oscar, and I will forever remember Ed Harris and Amy Madigan like sitting there yep. not clapping <laughs> yeah, yeah. while he got his Oscar because, or while he was honored because of because of this. Like this lingers, this Ilya Kazan of it all. And and so in watching that movie in this light, this movie that's a very pro testifying against something you see as corrupt. I mean, you can't help but feel an agenda that I don't agree with in a movie that I find compelling. Does that, uh, that's that's my complication. Anthony, is your complication different?
2: Yes, it's, well, it's, a, it's slightly different. I think you're right that it's a generic story. Even the fact that, you know, a character actor as wonderful as Lee J. Cobb Playing a guy named Johnny Friendly. Like, it just seems like, like, well, like, it just, that's like, that seems like uh, too much, (laughs) you know? Uh, I'm not saying that gangsters didn't have names like that, but um, it made him a caricature rather than a a person in my mind. And I think what was interesting about him uh, or interesting about this story is it does try to say in other instances, but this is an example of one. It's okay to turn against people who are doing the wrong thing. And that I agree with, like in general terms, it is good to stand up when your friends are doing something wrong and say, no, I'm, this is this is wrong. We shouldn't do this. Um, the problem is, is that that's not an absolute. And so when you apply it to things like, yes, it was okay to um, testify against people who had attended a, a, a meeting of, uh, uh, of people who believed in uh, socialism, <laughs> you know, and painting them as communists and infiltrators. Like, that's not right. That's not standing up and doing the right thing. Uh, Kazan felt he had. He absolutely felt he had done the right thing. So he made this movie as a defense of that. And I just think it's taking a generalization and applying it to a specific and so yeah. it's the specific that I don't apply. I don't believe in. I do believe that if you're murdering people on the waterfront, somebody should stand up right. and say something.
4: <laughs> Terry, like that's the thing is like, is Terry, that reasonable? Should, like Terry, Terry should testify, but I don't agree that that Eli Xan or anyone else you know who did testify should have done what they did because that was, uh, I think, pretty disgusting. But like. That he sees himself as a Terry and you just want to be like, buddy, yeah. you're not Terry Malloy. That's not who you are. Um, I don't know, Richard, what do you think of the meta-narrative meta around this?
5: Yeah, I mean, it's obviously it's complicated because we're, we're pro-rat, stool pigeon, whatever, in the film, watching the film. <laughs> um, uh, but I think it's kind of almost a mix, mischaracterization to call what Kazan and others who, you know, kind of fed into McCarthy's agenda that was not snitching because they were kind of, they weren't saying true things really. You know, it was, it was, exactly. and uh, you know, it's interesting that the, you know, you brought up the Ed Harris and Amy Madigan. There were a couple other people who kind of pointedly did not uh, clap for him when he got Mm -hmm. his honorary Oscar, but that, that legacy lasted that long. And yet the film, this film and some of his uh, Kazan's other work um, has endured, you know, there, there's a kind of compartmentalization of it. Uh, and probably a willing a, a sort of willful just like let's just forget that that ugly history happened even though you read you know all the time about you know if you're looking into like old Hollywood like whole careers that were derailed for decades if not forever right. by the all of this you know it was a really serious thing and I think that it's interesting that Brando kind of took the hundred thousand dollars and swallowed his convictions and, and did the movie and then was just did so, such a committed performance in it. And maybe some there's something in there about Eva Marie Saint saying afterward that he kind of, it was like he didn't know her, that he just kind of threw himself into the sort of singular focus of this project. And that was the way he could kind of, you know, com, you know that was the kind of compromise he could make about like his ideals about Kazan was like, I'm just going to focus on this thing. And then when I leave it, it's done. Um, and I I do think watching the film he's working well with the other actors in the sense that he's like reacting to what they're doing, but I, I don't know. He does swallow up a lot of the oxygen in the film. And, and, and maybe that was the only way that he could kind of get through it was to kind of just focus on himself and uh, not concern himself with uh, the kind of broader context of the film.
4: I feel like he connects with um, Eva Marie Saint. And I feel like he connects with um Rod Steiger and and then there are other moments where yeah it's just like watching him a great opera tenor do his solo (laughs) and like no one else is on the stage you know what I mean um I think the ending for all the naturalism of the rest of the film the ending feels a little I think it's a melodrama that fits the era of the 50s and and this is a, a melodrama to a certain degree, but it like it doesn't really match some of that more naturalistic stuff that you see earlier. Um, his his whole long walk at the end of the film, but Anthony, I think you want to talk about Carl Malden a little bit.
2: Well, I was going to say he, he, you know, he's he takes his uh, turn in the spotlight, and uh, that was another thing that I always loved about the film that I saw when I was very young. I was, you know, I was a Catholic kid, and. Um, the notion of a priest being like a street fighting man like, and standing up and being tough and actually standing for things that are good in the real world, as opposed to like being dressed in the vestments and speaking from the pulpit about sort of vague thousand year old stories and, you know, not making kind of droning on, not making any connection to my own life. Like it was kind of cool to see this, this, uh, you know, tough looking snarling preacher man down in the belly of a ship preaching to these, like these faces that are surrounding him in shadow, like symbolically, it was a very, like a a very kind of hellish image of being down in the bowels and down in the shadows and, and, uh, being surrounded by these demonic faces and then being having, you know, stuff thrown at you while you're talking, I think is, uh, like it's startling when that happens to him and he keeps going and he's kind of fearless and what i like about his performance is you would think the priest would be protected right because nobody's going to hurt a priest he's a uh, you know these are people who have uh, you know deep superstitions and deep religious beliefs and they're not going to they're not going to harm him but also to me again being from that faith, I was struck by how rare we saw a priest make a stand like that in real life for something that was um, that was decent, or really sticking his neck out to say something good. And so it was like, wow, that's cool. Like, you could do that? Like, he could take a chance, defy people, and stand for something good? I think Carl Malden, you know, he's eclipsed somewhat by Brando in this movie, but um, I think that's a pretty fantastic performance itself. What do you guys think?
4: Malden's always great, right? Like that's that's kind of the thing about no, but that's why him. he
5: gets overlooked. <laughs> <He's> oh
2: <not always laughs> he's always good. Kind of like you can see the progression, right? Of Carl uh, Malden, Gene Hackman, John C. Riley. Like they're sure. like
4: Yeah, yeah.
2: I don't wanna say they're exactly the same, but they fit a certain
4: yeah.
2: category, I guess.
4: They're notes on a scale, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um yeah and I guess the last thing I want to say about on the waterfront uh, and once again i so I'm so glad I finally saw this. I really can't I don't know, and I recommend people watch it absolutely um is I think some people think that it was used as sort of a cudgel of of like anti union propaganda for a really long time because like no doubt, no doubt in the fifties there was a lot of like some corruption and organized crime infiltration of of unions and stuff like that but I think this this was like this gave. <laughs> unions overall an unfair reputation uh for a long time and so that's something that like is working against it I think in 20 at least to my sensibilities in 2021 um Jimmy but- Hoffa
2: could not believe shocked <laughs> shocked that they would say these sort of things about the union <laughs>
4: But, uh, but yeah, I just, I, yeah, I, I really, I loved watching it. It's so funny when we were talking about the Golden Globes, at the, at the, you know, earlier in the segment, talking about the Globes and like it just takes one thing and then everything sort of crumbles. And that's, that's like, that's what On the Waterfront is. It's like Johnny Friendly's the head of the HFPA and everything's just sort of like crumbling because it took, you know, just a couple people speaking out. So the
2: HFPA read of On the Waterfront. Yeah, yeah <laughs> there you go. I love it. It was there's somebody in the, in the bowels of the HFPA like, we should. And take these watches from Pia Zadora, or you know, and uh, getting pelted by um,
5: by food from the elaborate buffet that was set up <laughs> by the studios. That shot of of him of Carl Malden after he's been pelted with fruit or whatever, being lifted up, yes, uh, is just mm. like that's like cinema. You know, I think there's so much in this movie that it feels um, just like a play almost. But that that there are these moments of like, oh wow, that's like actually something kind of distinctly you know filmy happening uh, uh, also that's catholicism like that's a stained glass window oh yeah
2: in the church yeah. where i would have been forced to go every sunday you know like it's uh <laughs> you know that ascension into the light he's yeah. done the right thing now he's now he's
5: ascending um well so this movie won best picture mm-hmm. it won best director it won best actor it Won best supporting actress uh, it won best story and screenplay, but lost best screenplay. I don't necessarily know the difference between those categories because they're old categories. To the Country Girl, uh, the Bing Crosby uh, Grace Kelly mm. film that she won an Oscar, a best actress Oscar for. Um, on the that's front. funny, because, yeah.
4: sorry, sorry but a bit of trivia I saw was that they offered this role to Grace Kelly, and she said no, and she went and made She was going to play window. Terry? That
5: would have been interesting. <laughs>
4: <Ooh>. <laughs> no, she was going to be Charlie. Yeah, um, yeah no, uh, th- you know, and that's why they went with even Marie Saint, who was, like, you know, uh, uh, in the Grace Kelly sort of Hitchcock, blonde, cool blonde spectrum. But, like, the... Uh, uh, or or that Grace Kelly was too refined for this role. And even though even Marie Saint like, gives you that sort of, like, she's going to get out vibe, she still seems like she could have come from here, I think was one thing that I saw. But uh, also... Uh, Object c- category fraud, right? Putting you Marie Saint in supporting um, when she's obviously the female lead of this of this uh, film. But uh, you know, I don't begrudge. Uh, delighted she has her Oscar. It for was it, happening
5: you know? even back then. Um, even
4: then, <laughs> I mean
5: the 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 categories. Some, I mean, you know, the best picture. The, uh, the movies that that Waterfront was up against: Cane Mutiny, Country Girl, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, Three Coins in the Fountain. A couple of those have endured, I think. But if you go to other categories, I mean, Kazan won Best Director against Hitchcock and Billy Wilder. On *The Waterfront* was not represented in this category, but alongside Grace Kelly, who won, was Jane Wyman, Audrey Hepburn, Judy Carland, and Dorothy Dandridge. Like that is quite a year um, wow. for a lot of different reasons. Um, I also want to highlight that. The Barefoot Contessa, the film, was uh, well-represented at one Best Supporting Actor this year for Edmund O'Brien. Um, had it not been for 1954 in cinema, we might not have Ina Garten. And I think that there's something really significant <laughs> to think about there. <laughs> Usually, hugely, hugely <laughs> yeah. culturally
4: significant. Yeah. Thank you for bringing this to my
5: attention. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, um, thank you for uh, watching the film along with us. I hope you did. Um, if not, you should go check it out. It is, if nothing else, I think a fascinating document of uh, what what was becoming of acting uh, in the mid-century of last century. And now we're going to turn to Katie Rich, who interviewed two people uh, in the mix of this year's Emmy Award season. Uh, the first interview is with Brett Goldstein. Uh, and then you're going to hear Katie in conversation with Hannah Einbetter from Hacks.
0: So I was not at the big keynote presentation that they did for Apple when they announced that Apple TV Plus was going to be a streaming service. But as far as I know, Ted Lasso was not part of that presentation or at least was not as highlighted as some of the other stuff that was on the network. Did you guys go into the launch of the show feeling like you were you know, Richmond-style underdogs at this big, fancy new streaming network?
3: Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, that's true. I had, I'd had forgotten that. Um, look, the, ho- the whole thing, I'm sure it's annoying to hear, but, like, genuinely, I don't think we expected anything with this show. Like, as in we were proud of it and we loved making it. But I don't know if anyone would watch it, let alone like it, etc. I think... Jason and I had a moment right at the end, like after we'd all said goodbye, it was like, well, we did something. This was, you know, this this was good, like this, <laughs> all of us together, this was good, but maybe that's it, you know. So, yeah, for sure.
0: Well, you've done, you know, you've worked in television for a long time, and I think you know Bill Lawrence from working on a show that didn't go forward. So you've, you've had your share of seeing how television can fall apart. Like, do you, do you ever have a sense of when something will work and when it doesn't?
3: No, no. Well, what I have a sense of, I think I've done stuff before that I thought was good, but no one watched it. Like, Mm -hmm. so I don't have a sense of what, if anyone will watch anything. Comedy's tricky because sometimes it can be funny on set and then in the edit, it doesn't quite work. So there's always a risk with that. I remember when we did the read through for episode four of this, of Ted Lasso where it really felt special. It felt special in the room, and I really felt like everyone, all the actors, all the crew, it was a real, like, we get this now. We are now a whole, and mm-hmm. everyone knew their characters, everyone knew their thing, and, it, and I just remember it being really exciting that day. Like, fuck, we're doing this thing, and this feels really special, you know what I mean? Like, it all... But again, I didn't think anyone would watch it. I mean, was
0: that so. the gala episode, episode yeah, four? Yeah, the gala episode, yeah. okay. I mean, I guess that's, like... The first one where it's getting the characters outside of their workplace, like there's something about it, it bringing everyone to a new environment. Is that what what made it feel like it gelled?
3: Well, I know. I I also I guess it was also maybe the first episode where everyone is together. We're all at the Mm -hmm. gala rather than some people are in Rebecca's office, some people are in the locker room, like everyone's in the same room for the whole episode, basically. So maybe that was it.
0: yeah. The show premieres last summer, the world's locked down, no one's going anywhere. Was there a moment when you realized how the extent to which it had taken off?
3: Well, it's so surreal as well, because we, you know, I've been in the UK, I've been in this attic that you are looking at during the pandemic, you know, we were writing season two, but I was writing it in this office, in this Mm -hmm. little attic with a Muppets poster and bullet holes behind me. And like, just on Zoom, you know, Zoom, and at my time, it was like, you know, six till midnight, my time. And Mm -hmm. so it was all very surreal. I was very tired (laughs) and uh, (laughs) hot and it was summer and I was stuck in this attic. And you can only tell because we weren't out in the world, you can only tell by kind of social media, you know, it's kind of amazing. People have done fan art. Like anytime you see anything where someone's made a creative effort based on the show or some moment in the show, you just think, Fucking hell, people are really watching it. And I think Mm -hmm. the thing there's all the stuff like me and Jason have always talked about, like, it's it, it, intentionality. It's like you put all this stuff into the show and there's lots of minor, subtle things in there that that we've wanted to put in and fought for. But there's always the thing of like, no one will notice that, but, we, but it matters because collectively all these tiny moments matter, subconsciously yeah. or not. But then reading, you know, people write, written like essays where they pick out all these tiny, subtle things that you... Didn't think anyone would notice, and the fact that mm-hmm. not only did they notice, they they appreciate it. I mean, it's really quite phenomenal.
0: Anything in particular you can think of that people picked up on that you're proud of?
3: I mean, all, all of it, but like the 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 tiny, you know, there's this, there's the this small story of Isaac becoming the captain, and you see this little journey, and it's all done in in small beats that you might miss. Like he he's mean to to Nate, and then there's a tiny moment where he makes room on the bench for nate and then you see roy sees him tell them to get off their phone when they're watching iron giant and Mm -hmm. it's all just tiny tiny bit of storytelling but it tells you why he chooses isaac at the end yeah yeah
0: there's a lot of moments of Roy, or it just cuts to Roy looking at somebody, you know, in his like role as the, as the keeper of the whole thing. Is that easier for them to pull off because you're on the writing staff and you're just around all the time? <laughs> like <laughs> When you just have to be in the background of an Iron Giant movie watching scene, they, they could just throw you in wherever they want? That's
3: funny. Maybe. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but the writing's all done beforehand, so I guess, no, they're just making you be on set all the time.
3: I mean, I'm very happy. I'm very happy to be there. No one's making me. No, it's not like, <laughs> get back on set.
0: I know that the, the writer's room is putting that together, but, like, in, are you working in your capacity as a writer when you're there on set as an actor? Like, how yeah. does that work?
3: Uh, well, we're always working on the scenes and change stuff on the day, and sometimes it's just, how would I say this that feels more natural? Hmm. There's that. And then that comes from all the cast. You know, anyone... Any, it was, we're always open. Like, if anyone has an idea, we'll always try it. Like, anyone's mm-hmm. allowed to. It's not... It's never set in stone, the thing. As long as... It's what Jason always says. It's as long as um, the emotional want and need is clear, the emotional drive of the character. Mm-hmm. Then there's any number of jokes you can do. There's any number of ways you can say that. As long as it's clear what's going on emotionally with with each person in that scene. It's constantly evolving, but the I think the story's set. You know, we we yeah. we we've, we've mapped it out, and then within the scenes, we can change stuff as we go, sometimes. So,
0: knowing that we can't talk about what happens in season two, but when you go into a second season, you're playing the character again, you know all of them better. Does that evolve in terms of what you add? Like, I know he would say this this way, or is the writing different because everyone else knows the character so well too?
3: Yeah, I mean, I I had this experience of, as a a writer, I'd made this show with Will Bridges called Soulmates, which was an anthology show. So every episode is completely new. And when I called him when I was writing my episodes for season two of Ted Lasso and I was like, oh my God, we we missed out on this. Like it was such a pleasure to write a season two script because you know the actors so well, you know the characters mm-hmm. so well. And it was a real like treat to be able to, I, I hate using this word, but to get in the sandbox. You've got the sandbox now and there's all these action figures in it and you can fucking get in there and play with them and you built mm-hmm. this thing. And it was a real, I'm not saying it was easy, but it was a fucking pleasure to write season two. And then in terms of acting, you just feel much more... Like in the beginning, Like when you're doing something in season one, when you film anything, the first thing you do is such a gamble because then it's mm-hmm. on camera, then it's th- like, that's it. That's the, the way you're going to play this character. It's sort of set in stone from day one. Mm-hmm. And it's a real gamble. and You don't know if it's worked or if it's paid off. And I think having gone through season one and very grateful that it connected with people you go into season two a lot more comfortable in in your character and and i think that's true for everyone everyone is really solidly their character in a way yeah. that i guess they grew and grew over season one and season two is like here we are it was really nice really fun
0: <laughs> i was looking at some of the interviews you've done previously and you have mentioned a few times that you grew up around footballers and i don't totally know what that means like it, you know it, I think in America, maybe it's just because it's bigger. Like, I didn't grow up around any professional athletes. But is this, what, what does that mean exactly? These are people you, like, you went to high school with that you knew? No,
3: no. I mean, literally, my, my, my parents were very good friends with some professional footballers. So There were quite a lot of professional footballers in my life when I was, when I was a kid. Okay. And so, you know, I grew up with their families. I grew up in their, in their world. So I saw mm-hmm. the kind of behind the scenes of football from an early age. And you um, witness
0: to the to the fame aspects of it, not just the like the love of the sport, but like how it affects your entire life, your family.
3: Yeah. And, yeah. And, and particularly, you know, because they were all also getting older as well. So I saw the aging of it and what happens when you retire, what happens next? And that's the, very much the, the part I think that I locked into with Roy was this thing of what do you do after? Mm-hmm. After you can't play anymore, like, fuck. (laughs) Like, it's so sad.
0: I find the aging thing so interesting and, you know, selfishly, because I'm in my late 30s now, like, you get to this point where you're like, I'm not old, but, like, I'm not the young person anymore either. And I I think in comedy and writing, like, that's a career you do, you can do your whole life. It's not like football. But, I mean, is that that something you had going on in your head as well, being like, well, you know, what do I do now that I'm reaching this age? How is, what is my career supposed to be for the next part?
3: For sure. I mean, I can't can't tell you how much... It spoke to me. I really, I really see Ted Lasso. Like, I don't want to sound like a dickhead, but it's it's a real like fucking miracle in my life. Like a real like, I was at a point of like, well, I guess, I guess that's it. And then mm. this this came along, and it was like, oh fuck yeah, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and uh, I fully understand where you're coming from.
0: Playing. A football player is a whole physical thing, and like you know, I don't know, like training. Med- I don't like want to know about your training regimen, but just like what it means to like put yourself on camera in that way, like when you're a writer. But you know, you've acted before, but like, is it different when you're playing someone who is at that level of physical accomplishment uh, as this character?
3: Well, I think it definitely. Look, I, I am, I can't really play football. Like, I'm not a great footballer, and I, and I think when, when I, when I initially signed up. I think as the show evolved, it had more and more football in it. And in the beginning, we were always saying, it's not really about football, but then it was like, it really is about football as well. <laughs> and um, we did have training and we did have, you know, people on set. But in ter- it's more to do with the physicality of intimidation is that a, a big mm. part of my, there's a there's a footballer that I grew up with uh, and he was a captain and I and I did a big chat with him. I did a big like sort of research conversation with him and I asked him, about it and and so much of what he said was to do with scaring people he was like you know my my part of my job is going on the pitch and making people scared to run towards me you know and <laughs> and intimidating them and saying shit and and like he told me this story of this like young player on an opposing team when he came out on the field and the young player was like i just got to say i'm such a huge fan of yours and instead of saying oh that's very nice he went who the fuck are you and it was like <laughs> and he was like that's my job my job was you don't fuck with me like i make you intimidated to to play against me and so i think you know there's a way that roy i always think of roy he's like a he's like a walking fist like he's he's fucking ready at all times for a fight he thinks there's a someone to headbutt down every mm-hmm. corridor and mm-hmm. he's so on edge and so furious he's just sort of this fucking vibrating fist walking down the <laughs> corridor so I think in terms of how I carried myself as Roy it, it was like he's a fucking wall of fight
0: <laughs> do you is there someone who teaches you like if you hold your shoulders in this way you look more imposing like I, I you know dancers would probably know like exactly how to move your body to do that
3: no it was just um I felt right
0: channel the rage yeah when he grows over the course of the season, like, are you changing the way that you hold yourself in that way? Like, I think you see in, on your face the, like, if, you know, the unclenching of the fist, like, how, and how much of a struggle it is. Like, what, what do you do with your, with your body to get to that point where he is at the end of the season? Well, look,
3: there's a, there's a thing of, uh, like, very specifically in season one that, you know, Roy smiles, I think, four times in season one. And none of them were accidental. Like they're very like chosen spots for. Yeah. Uh, uh, like I'd kind of plotted the smiles. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he's like an iceberg, and he's and he keeps melting, and things are being chipped off. And sometimes mm-hmm. it's in the face, and like a softening of it, of the sort of scowl. And but also he can turn it back on. He can, you know, he can say who the fuck are you at any moment. Yeah. Like,
0: yeah. Yeah. yeah.
3: I don't think he's ever going to lose that, but he's certainly, for the first time in many, many, many years, he's kind of letting the light in, and that's so much to do with Keely as much as it's to do with Ted, and um, and it's also what I think is true in life is he's different with different people. You know, he's he's never going to be soft, soft with Jamie. You know, yeah. I don't think he's ever really going to smile with Jamie in the room. You know what I mean? I
0: like that. I like that a show like this can maintain some uh, some true enemy relationships between those two that like it's not like not everyone is capable of being friends with each other I feel like that's also true to life on some level yeah. Um, I mean, you, you've told the story of how you you know, put yourself on tape to play Roy after having written him in the writer's room, which to me feels like such a gamble of putting yourself out there in that way. But I think as an actor, you're auditioning all the time, like you're putting yourself out. But did it feel like a, a huge risk when you did that? And like, you know, maybe you wouldn't be invited back into the writer's room exactly. if it went badly? Yeah,
3: that was the biggest risk is it was like if I... if Because I, I also know what it's like on the other side. Like if they hadn't mm-hmm. like the tape, it's really... It's really awkward and it's really embarrassing and it's kind of annoying. I put them in a position that's uncomfortable because they probably have to. They, you know, they probably don't want this tape. So it's very mm-hmm. fucking good. So it was a real, it was a real gamble. And I did think, yeah, if this, if they don't like this tape, not only am I not getting this part, but I also may not come back for season two as a writer because they may, mm-hmm. they may feel so uncomfortable that I'll just be fired.
0: But is that also that you know you you have enough of a friendship with Bill Lawrence that you come onto this show and you like trust him enough to send him that tape? Like, is that what is that the power of building relationships in an industry like this, where it's somebody who you know you can navigate that with, as opposed to working with people you don't know as well? Yeah,
3: for sure. Listen, definitely, um, I've been very spoiled in this in this show and with these people in that I can't imagine working with people that are dicks. <laughs> like that would make I just don't know how you do it. But I mean, also, I assume you
0: have at some point. You've had a long oh, enough career that for sure <laughs> you've encountered it somewhere.
3: I absolutely, have yeah. <laughs> uh, but I think again, it's like in hindsight, it was a real fucking last swing that tape I made because I'd been, you know, I'd been acting for a long time. But so often, you don't get a lot of great parts. A, you don't get a lot of great parts offered to you, and B, you don't read a lot. I didn't read a, a lot of scripts that I was. You know, particularly excited by it, and so when this Roy and I just felt so passionately, like I really fucking get Roy, that I was willing to risk that it was just a properly like one last swing. I'll take one last swing, and if if this doesn't come off, then maybe I just accept that's it, and yeah. uh, and I'll just go go into a cave and die. <laughs>
0: Because there had been talk about you being Higgins at one point, yeah, right? And then that character mad. just changed. So like it was, it was. Well yeah, well, yeah. Now that you see how it turns out, it's yeah. hard impossible to imagine. But it, like, it was like either that, or then did you think maybe you'd like be on one episode or something? Like was there a, like possibility in your mind of being on it, or did it really only come up when when Roy existed? No, I
3: think I think I'd because uh, I think even I knew I wasn't right for. Hig- I think Higgins <laughs> was like the the fake. Enticement to like, you can come be a writer, but but yeah, of course, we'll still think of you as an actor. You could be Higgins, and I was like, I'm not going to be Higgins. Uh, so no, I don't think so. And I love the writing of it, don't, you know, the, and I love the write. Like I, it was so fun, you know. I would have been fine just being a writer, but I just felt madly passionate for this part.
0: I wanted to ask you about your podcast because you know you've maintained it through lockdown, through working on two shows at once through being on a show through what would seem like a period in your life, or maybe you wouldn't have time for a podcast. What has it meant for you to, to keep that up? And you know, you're, you know, film fandom, I guess, like you're, you're devoting yourself to the way that like film nerds do who don't have a TV show to write. Like what, why do you want to hang on to the, to that part of yourself?
3: Well, I am a workaholic. So, you know, if there's any, <laughs> if there's an hour gap, I better fill it. Otherwise I've got to listen to the, the noise in my head. Uh, but there's that, but also, again, it's that thing of you must have it. You're doing this. It's so rare to fucking talk to someone properly and for an hour. And the conversations so you get to have with really interesting people, and even even there, you know, there are times where I think, oh, fucking, hell, I got, a, I'm running out of podcasts. I need to record some more. And it feels like a chore. And then as soon as I'm in it, it's like you're connecting with a person and hearing their life story and finding the thing that's. You know, the secret of my podcast that I didn't realise, I didn't know this was the secret, I, it it just is, is that it's not really about the film, it's about people's lives. And because they're answering questions about film, they're actually revealing stuff about themselves they might not normally. So if I'm asking you what's the film that scared you the most, we are talking about what scares you the most. Do you know what I mean? And
0: mm-hmm.
3: I find, and people are fascinating. If you If you ask the right questions, people are fascinating. So there's that. I guess on a personal, selfish level, I like having the conversation. The admin of it is really shit, and I could do without <laughs> it.
0: <laughs> but like in another life, you would you would just have my job, where you just like interview people about what they do and uh, yeah. talk to them about movies. It's very fun. I highly recommend it. Yeah, yeah.
3: I mean, you don't have to do the edit. Yeah, fuck
0: it. <laughs> Wait, do you edit your own podcast?
3: Yeah. I mean, well, I have a oh. I have a producer buddy piece who does who doesn't edit, then I do another edit to make sure. And then, because I'm a terrible, <laughs> terrible perfectionist <laughs> and control freak.
0: How do you feel about the sound of your own voice at this point?
3: Absolutely hate it.
0: It's awful. Mm. Like, just listening to your own voice. And no one else thinks that it's terrible, but it's there's something Im- ingrained in our brains that just thinks it's terrible.
3: Yeah, why is that? Uh, is it because when we were, went into caves, we'd <laughs> shout... And like I don't really understand why evolutionary we're meant to hate our own voices. <laughs> what good I don't either. It do and like? it's
0: like and like our own faces, like I don't I don't feel my about my face the way I do about my voice. It's a totally different thing and I don't know what it is.
3: You don't feel the way you feel about your face, about your voice. Like if
0: I look like looking at my own face on this Zoom is like yeah. it's fine. Like it's no, I would rather not be looking at my own face, but hearing your own voice has this like cringy aspect to it. It's like you don't know that's what you sound like, mm. but you do know what you look like. Does that make
3: sense? It does, accept. I'm always shocked by what I look like. It's never <laughs> how I've imagined it. it. And that happens with the acting, That that's why. And now I really understand when actors say, "Like, oh, I never watch it back, and everyone always goes, you liar. I sort of go, yeah, I get it, because you think you're doing this, and then you watch it back and go, I was not do that at all.
0: <laughs> Is that something you've gotten used to from being on a TV show?
3: I made a film called Super Bob, and we did so so long in the edit and i basically got to a point where i had to be objective about it because i watched it and i wanted to fucking throw myself out a window like i was cancel
0: like, the movie this but
3: i found um, if, I, if i watched it six times then i could get past that and just start watching mm. it as a objective like now we need to edit this and make it it's good. like
0: exposure therapy
3: yeah <laughs> like clockwork <laughs> Orange just tied my tied me down yeah Exactly. Look at that stupid face. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, I'm excited we get to talk about Hacks now that the um, whole season has aired um, because, I, you know, you did a lot of press at the beginning, but it was, like, always unclear where it was going to go. And the first thing I want to ask is about Ava's childhood bedroom that is revealed, I think, in the final episode. And, like, I read—I know Entertainment Weekly did a whole story about all the fake magazine covers that are in the bedroom, which are just so perfect to me. Um, and it just had such a pang. Like, I that was my bedroom in high school. And I'm just—I'm so curious about what— when you saw that room, what you learned about the character from it, like how it felt to get to that level with your character in that bedroom scene.
6: So Jen Statsky um, called me, I think like maybe two or three weeks before we shot that. And she was like, hey, uh, what did your childhood bedroom look like? Like, what did you what were some staples Um in your bedroom as a kid. And I said uh wall to wall Jesse McCartney posters.
0: Wow.
6: Um <laughs> you know, just a really pretty, 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 pretty boy. <laughs> <laughs> um and she was like, Great, perfect. And so um yeah, there was one of the the photoshopped uh magazines with Jesse's face on it. Um I hope he's honored. He, you know, I will say, not to brag, okay, but (laughs) there's possibly a brag coming your way right now. Uh, Jesse McCartney did notice it and shout it out, and I told him, I was like, you don't understand how much I love you. Uh, (laughs) Truly, there was no blank space on my walls, just Tiger Beat magazine (sighs) photos of you. So thank you for...
0: A long game to get Jesse McCartney's attention. I'm really happy for you. I can
6: retire now, which is great, because I'm really <laughs> tired.
0: Um, how many times did that happen throughout the show? Were they, for something for Ava, that they came to you and asked you about your version of it? Because, you know, the character is not you, but obviously you're bringing a lot to it.
6: Honestly, that was the first time there was any hmm. sort of, like, tangible, like, Tella uh, I mean some of her clothes are mine some of her clothes are Jen's some of her clothes are Lucia's the wow. the green dress is Jen's um in episode seven you know so in in those ways we all gave our like physical selves or physical you know items uh to to Ava but um this is one of the first times where it was like hey like your uh, advice is affecting the set dressing, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, other than that, they let me like improvise jokes for her and um, write jokes for her here and there throughout the series. So that was that was great and, an, and a lovely way to give a little more of myself to her.
0: Are you do you take credit for the Fenty Pumas with the gummy soles that she's digging through in her garage?
6: <laughs> that is some gorgeous, <laughs> brave
0: person. Not me. It's so specific. It was it has stuck in my brain for so long. Um, I love in that final episode, like, obviously, Jane Addams shows up as your mom, when she's amazing. Um, and there's so much hinted at between the two of them that goes unsaid. And I think Ava talks about it later just having this really lonely and happy childhood, and it's all kept very vague. And now that we know that there's a second season, I you know, assuming to get into that. But what did you think through the backstory on that? Like, what did you do with that little bit of information that we got about Ava's childhood?
6: So, I mean, I didn't really um, learn a ton about that until those episodes started, you know, until I got those episodes in my hands. But it made perfect sense to me because I I think anybody who is difficult, who has a hard exterior, who sort of projects this image of, you know, uh, kind of strength and doesn't really let people in, maybe isn't as self-reflective in the beginning I find that in life those people are typically um, they have built up those walls to protect something very um, soft inside and if they have built up those walls there has to be some sort of trauma or some sort of difficult uh, family life Um, so I assumed upon Mm -hmm. like quote unquote meeting her initially that she had some you know issues yeah you know knowing that she came out here so young and dropped out of college and you know it 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 made sense so i wasn't surprised it was easy to slip into that
0: but you didn't get you didn't get into the specifics with jen or anybody about what that story might be yet
6: not until uh midway like maybe like a couple like two months or something into shooting i mean In terms of like my preparation for her like I kind of it kind of helped almost to to not know that because it was Mm -hmm. easy to it was great to take everything as it came kind of you know Mm -hmm. like this is where she is now this is where she is now this is where she is now and when she goes home like having that be a real raw reaction to those sort of psychotic forces (laughs) coming Mm -hmm. from Jane who's wonderful um And such an amazing actress to watch work, honestly.
0: Yeah, she just—you meet her like I just feel like whenever she shows up in something, you like, you feel like you have a grip on the character in a way, even before she does anything. And she does—she's different every time, but she's just such a welcome presence whenever I see her.
6: Yes, 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 agree.
0: Um, And then toward the end of that episode, Ava kind of has like a breakdown moment with um, with Deborah finally, and like finally crying about her father's death. And like you know, you've been acting, you've been playing this character for a long time, but you know, being relatively new to acting, what? Is crying on screen something that felt weird for you? Was that different from the other acting challenges that it had been? Because it's such a vulnerable moment for for anybody, I think, even when you are in character.
6: Yes. And luckily, I have um, a ton of experience crying in public. Um, So (laughs) thanking my lack of serotonin for that. Um, Shouts out to the lack of serotonin. But I, yeah, I mean... There were several scenes where I cried throughout the show and each time I kind of like feel like I am a part of like the MacGyver school of acting where I'm like, all right, I got to cry and all I have is floss and peanut butter, (laughs) you know, where I'm just like, I don't know what to do. Like uh, the first time I did it um, before I had to go to set, I watched I actually watched the scene of Matthew McConaughey in. Uh, the what, movie Interstellar? in Interstellar, yeah, where he where Murph is signing off, yeah, and she's mad at him, and he's like, you know, obviously like fucking sobbing. And I just like yeah. kind of tapped into his energy. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then for one, I watched, <laughs> I watched, um, the end credits of Schindler's List,
0: whoa, that.
6: Yeah, that that got that always gets me. Um, I watch that, you know, I mean, that movie like obviously tears me apart. And so I just was like, yeah, this is going to obviously trigger me. (laughs) Um, And then I started to do it like a real ass actor, you know, like I started to be like, okay, I'm actually so present and in the scene that I, I don't feel weird about this. I don't feel embarrassed to cry in front of people like now I am, you know, present and in it and I am being moved to tears by the words, and you know that I am hearing from this person sitting across from me, mm-hmm. like especially in that moment with Jean, like you know she says to Ava that she is good, and you know there is a certain amount of Ava and Deborah present in the room, but it's also me and Jean, and you know I allowed that moment to sink in and hit me because I'm so self conscious. Um, and so, you know, I allowed myself to take in the possibility that, you know, that was Jean talking to me. And that made me cry.
0: <laughs> is, is that being present when you're, when you're, you know, not learning how to act, but, you know, doing this for the first time and getting being visible for the first time? Is that the challenge when you're going from being a performer to like being in a character in a show in this way?
6: For sure. um, For sure. Especially with my brain. Like I am someone who is a million places at once whenever it's very hard for me to be present. I just have like such bad ADD and ADHD that my mind is so scattered. And I'm like Mm -hmm. analyzing everything that I say in real time. There's a separate loop going all the time. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so to to turn that off and be there. It was such a gift in, in my life. It was such a gift for me, someone who doesn't really experience that. You know, I can't really meditate at this point in my life. I'm still working on (laughs) trying to get that on lock. But this feels like the closest I've come, honestly.
0: How do you teach the rest of us who don't, who aren't actors, but just need to learn how to shut our brains off? Like, It would be (laughs) helpful, honestly.
6: I wish I knew because this is the only time I've ever... It's, I'm, I miss it for that reason. Like, just, it's really an escape from yourself, which I'm always like, yeah.
0: please. <laughs> yeah. Well, you guys went through a bunch of this season airing without knowing if a second season was going to come. i like, I'm curious, like, you know, the news broke to the rest of us like a week ago. Like, how did that come to you? And, um, you know, what were you feeling waiting on tenterhooks to know if a second season would happen?
6: It was so funny. Jen, Jen emailed the cast and she did one of those like psych out openings where <laughs> she was like, Hey, guys. Um, the studio just let us know that a bunch of stuff was stolen from set. So if one of you could come forward, like, we don't want to make this a bigger deal than it actually is. Just kidding. We got a second season.
0: <laughs>
5: <laughs> I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious.